Hey guys, welcome to the Fieldcraft for All podcast. I'm going to be your host for this podcast in the ad space. My name is Kevin Estella. I am the director of survival training here at the company. This is going to be an interesting one, um, but before we get down to business, I got to give thanks to the folks that make this podcast completely possible. And those are our good buddies over at Sig Sauer and Black Rifle Coffee. Now, if you guys don't know about Sig Sauer, it is one of the oldest firearms companies in the entire world. Um, I can't go on record with the exact date off the top of my head. I haven't had enough coffee this morning to even process that, but I do know that it's been around for a while. And I know my own personal history with that company goes back decades. Uh, I've owned the 220, I've owned a 226. I've owned a 228 at one point. I sold them all stupidly, uh, but I'm currently the happy owner of a 320 and a 365. And I've been to the Sig Sauer Academy a bunch of times. Um, Sig is the manufacturer of the new uh, firearms that are going to be used by the U.S. Army. They are a major name in the firearms space, uh, carried by military, armed professionals, hunters, uh, concerned citizens, you name it. So uh, please check them out. If you do get a chance to go to the Six Hour Academy, I can give you a whole laundry list of good places to eat. Make it a weekend trip. Go up there, get some good breakfast, eat at Goody Cole's, amazing barbecue. Stay at the Exeter Inn. There's all sorts of good stuff that you can do while you're up there in addition to hanging out at SIG. Talk to the amazing instructors. Guys, SIG is the place to go. Uh, while you're there, I highly recommend that you guys bring some travel coffee and you can get that through Black Rifle Coffee. They're another one of our amazing podcast sponsors. Black Rifle Coffee is located over in Salt Lake City. It's run by Evan Hafer and the boys. Guys, please check them out. Um, I'm currently running, I think, on two cups of just black coffee. And I guarantee at some point today, I'm going to have one of their ready-to-drink beverages. Uh, we have a whole palette of them over at our production facility that we're supposed to give away at events. But I would be lying if I said maybe one or two of them fell off the proverbial truck. Uh, guys, Black Rifle Coffee is amazing. They're good folks. They're good friends. And like I said, I travel with their stuff everywhere. I've got their ready to drink uh, cans at home and I've got their powdered coffee in all of my backpacks. Even my everyday carry backpack, I've got some of that stuff. And I'll tell you, uh, whether you decide to add water or not, it's good. Uh, and don't get me wrong, like you can totally have it without water, but you're gonna have a mouthful of coffee grinds and your teeth are gonna look nasty for a while, but I guarantee you'll get some energy out of it. So please check them out, Black Rifle Coffee. Uh, so. Without further ado, here we go. Uh, we're gonna get down to this podcast. This is with Dave DeCherbo of Destination Backcountry Adventures. Here we go. All right, guys, get ready for an awesome podcast. Uh, here's a little background before I introduce our guest. Uh, I went to Fairfield University, and that's in Fairfield, Connecticut. And you know, in addition to being an incredible school where you get a world-class education and you really learn about the concept of being in service to you know god and country and like you're you're doing things for the right reason after you graduate you get this magazine it's a monthly magazine and it's called you know fairfield now and it kind of gives you an update and generally in the back you look up like all right let's see where my classmates are let's see if anyone's had any babies let's see if anyone has unfortunately passed away like you tend to go right to the back to see like what people are doing it's it's kind of like what people did before the days of facebook and twitter and instagram and all that well i normally will go through it and i'll see like okay school got a bunch of money and all right you know here's what this professor is doing and oh i didn't like that professor and oh here's one of my favorite professors like you tend to kind of skip over the main stuff but every once in a while an article will stand out it'll jump out at you and you know, recently that was my experience. So I'm skipping through the magazine and I see 
a woodland landscape. And I'm like, I know those woods. What article is this? And I'm like, that's the Adirondacks. Now, if you guys have been following me and if you've been following my work with Fieldcraft Survival, you know that before I joined Fieldcraft, I was working at a survival school in upstate New York called the Wilderness Learning Center. Now, it was a full-time survival school. We operated there 365 days a year, and we traveled frequently to the Adirondacks. And we did a lot of canoe trips, winter canoe camping trips, backpacking trips, you name it. Well, I'm looking, I'm like, those are my woods. And I say my, like as if I own them, I don't. But I was like, all right, what is this article? And I skip back and it says, hey, there's this guy who graduated uh, from Fairfield who's running an outdoor program there. And I'm like, this is awesome. I have to talk to this guy. So I, I'm skipping through and I'm like, okay, he worked in a corporate job and then he left the corporate job and now he's living the dream of pursuing the great outdoors, adventure in the great outdoors. I'm like, I need to get this guy on the podcast. Shoot him a quick email. I'm like, hey, I'm class of 02. Uh, we got a lot in common. What do you say? And he was happy enough to, to or willing enough to join us on the podcast. So that gentleman is named Dave DeCherbo, not DeCerbo, as I've been corrected. Uh, I don't want to screw that up again. So Dave DeCherbo runs Destination Backcountry Adventures. And prior to this podcast, we were just, you know, spitballing a little bit, talking about this and that. And he's an interesting dude. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. So Dave, how are you, my friend? Thanks, man. Kevin, I'm great. Thank you for having me on. Uh, you've got some great sponsors there. I always joke that most of our guides run on caffeine. So getting that symbiosis there with the coffee sponsors, that's pretty spectacular. Um, you know, we we have our backcountry espresso machines and sort of, you know, we often the clients will joke about that and we just look at them side eye like, no, 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 this is where the magic happens right through here. So I'm going to have to give those, uh, it's Black Rebel Coffee. I'm going to give those guys a shot. Sounds fantastic. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you a, a bag of it. We actually have our own uh, coffee blend that's coming out through through black rifle um and i'll tell you like you've probably done the the cowboy coffee before right like just letting yeah. it boil and, and seep yeah. over is that what i mean you guys you're probably running like backpacking french presses right yep yep so you know we we are um my wife and i live up here in the village of catskill but the company is based in brooklyn and uh we we have a new york city demographic that comes out and uh New York City also runs on caffeine. And oh, yeah. um, that was one of those things, you know, when I did backpacking trips before I started leading professionally, I was usually a tea guy in the woods. Like I might carry a little bit of coffee just for the long days. But for me, it was always just easier to not just, you know, tea bags or loose leaves or whatever the case might be. Um, but once I started guiding, I realized, nope, nope, everybody's going to need some real coffee. And uh, on top of that, um, it's got to be pretty tasty coffee, too. So we, we actually partnered up with uh, GSI. Um, oh, yeah. They make yeah. a fantastic backcountry espresso maker. So that's usually our go to. Um, but occasionally for the bigger groups, we'll run the French press. Um, one of our guides swears by her pour over. So she's willing to get up an additional 30 minutes earlier to do the pour over for the clients. I say more power to her. But yeah, yeah, we're we're pretty loyal to the espresso maker out there. Keeps us running. Yeah. Evan, the owner of Black Ruffle Coffee, made me a cup of coffee when I first met him, like literally just met this guy. I walked into the Salt Lake City office and he's like, hey, man, you want a cup of coffee? I'm like, sure. And uh, he did the pour over. And to this day, I say it's one of the strongest cups of coffee I've ever had. And he almost kind of was like throttling it back. Like, how, how strong do you like it? I'm like, pretty good, man. I don't want to be able to smell colors, but you know, like, <laughs> right, right. like, and he made me the pour over and it's amazing how you can get into a crazy science of, all right, I'm going to add this amount of liquid at this temperature, wait five minutes, add more. I mean, people go crazy, but that GSI yeah. press that you're talking about, I mean, that company is a 
monster. Like they're making, uh, well, you're, you said the French press, they're making all the enamel wear, they're making the, the Lexan forks, they're making, uh, I mean, all sorts of camp accessories. So it's pretty cool that you guys were able to, to hook up with them. Um, you know, and you know, I'll tell you, like, it doesn't matter personally for me, like how I have my coffee in the woods. I just love that smell. Like between that and, yeah. and bacon in the morning. Oh my yeah. gosh. I'll, I'm, I'm good. Um, <laughs> but you mentioned the cat skills and there might be some listeners that think, okay, New York city is New York state. And for a lot yeah. of folks that are, that are listening, you might not be aware that New York city is a, is a, has a, a lot of the character of New York, but it's not all of New York. And New York is actually a very wooded state. So the Catskills are approximately how many miles north of the city? Yep. So to get a sense of it too, uh, the Catskill Park is mm -hmm. 700,000 700, 700, acres, right? So um, the closest part to New York City, you could probably get there in about a two-hour drive. To get to the heart of the Catskills, add another 30 minutes. To get to the northern and western edges, probably as much as like three and a half hours. Um, so it's pretty, and and the Catskill Park is dwarfed, as you know, by the Adirondack Park, mm -hmm. which is I think 1.8 million acres of protected land. So I always tell people like, you, everyone thinks New York City, just like you said, but there's well over 200 million acres of, uh, you know, 200 million, sorry, 2 million acres of protected land in the state. So it, it is pretty spectacular. Um, and the Catskills, America's first wilderness, um, you know, being relatively accessible to the major population center then as now New York City, um, you know, a lot of the first experience that America had with wilderness was in the Catskill Park. And that's where you see like the Hudson River School of Painters, uh, mm -hmm. Thomas Cole, Frederick Church, um, you know, they were the first to share that American landscape, you know, long before we made the push over the Appalachians and into the Ohio River Valley and then eventually out to where you guys are all the way out there in Utah. Um, so I always tell our clients, you know, you're hiking America's first wilderness. And um, part of what's great about that, that it was protected so soon, um, you know, the, the DEC, not that it was called the DEC then, but in 1885, New York State protected all of this land. So, the, you know, in some ways, the New York State Forest Preserve, it predates the National Park Service. Right. Um, and the cool thing is, because it was protected so so early on, the logging was not as extensive as it was in some other places that have now been reclaimed as wilderness. So there are spots in the Catskills where you can hike in and be among an old growth forest, trees that are four or 500 years old. And it blows people's minds that we can pick them up at 6.30 outside of Grand Central in a 15 person van. And by one o'clock that afternoon, they're in an old growth forest that's been completely wild, never touched by man. You know, the forest that arose there when the glaciers retreated. And um, as you know, from being in places like that, if you're tuned to it, you can pick up a certain type of energy and magic in those places. And even people who are untrained, you know, the guides will point out like, well, look at how the ground looks. Look at all the large deadfall. You don't see that in the second growth forest. But even without our interpreting, oftentimes people who are aware and present will just sense the change. They'll notice the trees are getting bigger. The forest is a little bit darker here. Um, and it's pretty amazing when people come to that on their own and then say, hey, is this forest different than the one we hiked in through? You go, yeah, it actually is. And it's so cool to be able to explain that. And uh, it does, it blows people's mind because um, 
even for native New Yorkers, which is, you know, obviously there are a lot of expatriates from all over the country, all over the world living in New York City. But it's really interesting when you have someone who grew up in Brooklyn who goes, I never knew this was all up here. I'm like, yep, that's, that is why we exist. Yeah. You know, when I first traveled to the Catskills, um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in Hunter um, and, and in Phoenicia and, and North sure. Lake. So I went to those areas a lot. Um, I got the sensation when I went to the Catskills of, and I know this sounds kind of cheesy, but I think you're a child of the 80s as well. Do you remember that movie Camp Whitewater Summer? Uh, man, absolutely. Yeah, right. One of Kevin Bacon's <laughs> finest yes. movies, right? Like, like, oh God, Kevin, uh, Kevin Bacon, Sean Astin, right? Kevin Bacon's a guy named uh, Val. And yep. he takes a bunch of kids into the woods. And at one point he does a couple things where you're like, all right, this dude's sketchy, but I mean, he's teaching them how to be resilient and gritty. And, you know, he's showing them how to gut fish. And like, I was like, I love this character. And then of course they do yeah. him dirty at the end. But uh, in any case, when I first traveled to the Catskills, I'm like, this feels like Camp Whitewater summer, you know, like you get this, you get these amazing amazing lakes and, and ponds that are just so pristine. And then you get these woods, these hardwoods and mountains. Like, yeah. uh, I know that the Eastern mountain sports climbing school runs, uh, is it the Shawagunks? Yep. yep. Yeah. They, just they, south of the Catskills. Um, it's some of the finest climbing on the East coast, if not in the country, it gets overlooked, you know, when there are so many amazing other destinations, but, um, and that's even closer. Like you can get to the crag in New Paltz on the Shawagunks hour and 30 minutes if there's no traffic from mm -hmm. manhattan um and that's that's really one of my favorite places to explore over there um it's it's really unique geology it's a type of rock that only exists in that one little spit of land um it's a tiny narrow little geological feature it runs all the way down to northern virginia and it's composed of what they actually call shawnagunk conglomerate and without getting too geology nerdy <laughs> It's essentially limestone that was metamorphosized, which would normally give you marble, right? One of the hardest rocks there is. But before it metamorphosized, a lot of seashell aggregate got trapped within the limestone. So as you know, like with cement into concrete, you go and put an aggregate in there, it gets even harder. So we joke that like, if you set your pins correctly in the Shawnagunks, you can belay an elephant off of some of those crags. So yeah, and EMS runs a great climbing school up there. It's uh it's the standard for, I think, climbing in New York. Now, let's talk about you because, I, I mean, I want to get to, to DBA, but I also want to talk about you. Now, sure. you and I have a similar background. Uh, we both grew up in Connecticut, and obviously, we were both working for outdoor companies. Um, but let's kind of talk about, like, the early Dave and, like, when you decided to say just the hell with this corporate job, right? Because I think yeah. that's the goal and that's the dream of a lot of folks. They're like, how do I leave this job that is very unfulfilling and do what I love? And yep. I think if more people hear these stories, they'll have the courage and the the willingness to be like, you know what? I'm going to do what that guy did because if he could do it, I could do yeah. it. So kind of yep. walk us through like how you got to the point where you started DBA and then where you are now. Yep. Yep. I will, before I do, I'll say that, and that really is the case. It's a story that I love telling because um, it can inspire other people. You know, it's, it's one of the big parts about being a guide is helping people live their best life. And um, 
oftentimes, you know, our own lived experience can be a bit of a model for that. So, um, yeah, I mean, the Cliff Notes version, um, when I graduated, I uh, did the whole, you know, everything you're supposed to do in terms of get a good job, get promoted, um, establish yourself well professionally. And um, by my 32nd birthday, um, I had been promoted uh, to a, a pretty nice position in the publishing business. I was working in educational publishing. I was managing uh, a sales team in New York State. And I had been doing that for about two years. And it was just getting increasingly more difficult. You know, at first it was like, oh, I still have time to go hiking once a month. And then it was, okay, well, I'll get out once a season. And then all of a sudden I went, my God, it's been four months since I was in the woods. This is crazy. Um, and to be clear, you know, my work was pretty rewarding. I was working with school districts so I could feel that, you know, my work was having an impact in educating the next generation. Um, but, you know, the, the corporate life can be a little difficult. The travel, um, the necessary but horrible bureaucracy and the extra steps required of being part of a big organization. I just got to the point where it didn't resonate with me. And, you know, I think when, when anyone is fortunate enough to be looking at making a, a jump to doing something they love. Um, you know, it's nice to be in a position where you felt like, okay, I was well compensated in this prior job and even the compensation didn't fulfill me. So it's clear that I need something more for fulfillment. Um, and uh, I would say that by September of 2007, I was kicking around the idea of leaving. And um, what, what really sealed it for me um, that winter between Christmas and New Year's, my family, we were visiting my father's hometown in Italy. Um, my father's parents emigrated. I had never been to their hometown. So it's a really big thing for me. And uh, we had just closed a major deal with a large school district in New York State that will remain unnamed for the purposes of this conversation. And the superintendent called me every single day while I was over in Italy with my family. I told him the first day, I said, um, Always grateful to take your call, but just be aware there's a time difference. So if you need to reach me in the next few days, just account for the fact that I'm on vacation in Italy with my family. Thinking, okay, he'll read between the lines. I won't have to hear from him again till I'm back stateside. Well, every single day I got a call. So uh, I was talking to my father on the flight home. And I said, dad, he's killing me. He said, well, listen, you know, no mortgage, no kids, no wife. If you want to make a jump, you should do it soon, but you should have a plan. I said, you're up, right. I'm going into 2008. I'm going to have an exit plan. Fast forward to January 18th. And uh, I board a plane to go out to Chicago for one of our monthly meetings. And um, we're sitting on the tarmac and the pilot comes on and he says, okay, folks, uh, good news. We're going to be pulling away from the gate. Bad news is we expect that we'll be sitting on the tarmac for about an hour and a half before we're able to take off. And like right then, I'm just triggered. I'm going, I can't do this anymore. I waste so much of my life. Uh, in hotel rooms and airports. This is meaningless. And so I looked down at my phone. The pilot said, please turn off your phones. I see I missed three calls from the national sales manager. So really quickly, I call him back and hush tones. Hey, hey, Barry, Barry, what's up? You know, I'm, are you in Chicago yet? I said, no, no, I'm on the plane. He said, well, listen, get off the plane if you can. There are changes happening here internally. I went, oh my God, oh my God, okay. So I get off the plane, you know, this a flight attendant says, uh, you can't get up. I said, listen, you got to let me off. You haven't done cross-check yet. I don't have to go to Chicago. I think I just got laid off. So they let me off the plane. I call vice president back. I said, okay, so what's the story? Because I didn't mean to panic you. You're in great shape. We're just, the company is going to be merged with another and the next couple of months are going to be pretty tough. And so I'm just sitting there and I go, you know, for those two minutes that I walked off of the plane thinking that I had been laid off, it wasn't, I wasn't worried. I was so relieved. And then I thought to myself, 
man, now that I've actually envisioned a future where I wasn't doing this, it's really hard to go back to. So I thought about it for about a week. Um, and then I got in touch with the National Sales Memphis and said, listen, all things considered, I appreciate the confidence you have in me that you're willing to go forward, but I don't think that I'm the right person to oversee this team through the transition. Um, so I'll be stepping away. And I did that and I went, okay, well, so now what? You know, I know that I like the outdoors. I know that I like helping other people. And I was desperately trying to figure out how I could combine those two things together. And uh, I'll be honest, guiding wasn't even on my radar at that point. I was thinking that I'd probably go back and get a master's degree in an advanced science so that I could do environmental education. I was considering going back and getting a master's degree in counseling so that I might be able to do wilderness therapy. Um, guiding wasn't even on my radar, uh, but I knew that the only way to really get a sense of what would be available in the outdoor industry would be to go do some adventuring. Um, so as I was saying when we were chatting just before we started, I took about five and a half months to go travel throughout the American West, um, you know, hitting all the good spots, Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, Oregon, Montana, Idaho, the whole mess. And uh, I was doing hikes that were about 10 to 14 days. And then I'd check into a hotel in the city and clean up and have a nice meal, have a Guinness and, you know, then head back out to the next hiking spot. And, um, I met all these great people out there. I met people working Bureau of Land Management. I met people doing all this different stuff. And I thought, all right, well, I got back to the East Coast and I was even more confused than ever about, wow, I didn't know what was available in the outdoors. Now I, there's almost too much available. So I figured, all right, well, I'm gonna get a part-time job just to sort of keep myself sane. Um, and so I wound up bartending at Leal at Anthony Bourdain's restaurant. Hmm. And just for fun, I started taking out some of my coworkers hiking. And you know, after being in the corporate world and not getting outdoors nearly enough, I really wanted to make up for lost time. So I would take the crappy weekday shifts and I'd have my weekends off and go off to the woods. So a few of the other bartenders and the waiters and the waitresses, oh man, this looks awesome. Take me along. Can I come next time? Yeah, just kick in for food and groceries and you know gas and everything like that. Um, after about a month of this, a few of my bar regulars started asking, hey, I overheard you talking about this great adventure. Have you climbed a mountain last weekend? I'd love to do that. So I said, yeah, yeah, just come along with us next time. Kick in for gas and groceries and all that. And uh, after about six months, I realized that two or three days a week, I was taking people out in the woods and loving that way more than the time I was spending, even working in a nice restaurant with a great menu, um, you know, meeting awesome people for all around the world. And so that's when I said, maybe there's a career in guiding. Um, and that's, that's when I first got into it. So that was about 2009. I had a, a nasty back injury that healed up, took about six or seven months. And, uh, after it did in 2010, uh, I went out West. I worked one season for a company that's no longer exists, no longer exists called Trek America. And um, after a season of experience guiding for someone else, I felt like, you know what? I, I think I've got the tools I need to, to get doing this professionally. So uh, the summer of 2011, I did a soft launch for Destination Backcountry Adventures. And uh, yeah, we celebrated our 10 year anniversary last year. Uh, survived the pandemic, which was a little dicey, um, but we made it through on the other side and uh, looking forward to expanding what we do going forward. Man. So it all, it all started with just a mental repetition of pretending like you lose your job and you say to yourself, what next? Yep. Yep. You know, there's, there's that song, right? Like live like you're dying. 
You know, like what would yep. you do if you knew that you were dying? But I remember, I think it was a professor at Fairfield that said, you're born only to begin to die. And I never forgot that expression. And it's like, you know what? It sounds like a dying. Fairfield professor. It sounds like a Fairfield professor, right? Like probably in the philosophy department. Um, yep. But uh, I mean, that's pretty wild that it was just that that two minute time period where, you know, you're fighting with the, the flight attendant to get off the plane. But yep. in your head, you've already run through the, the second and third order effects. Like, all right, I lose my job. Now what? Now what? All right, what do I do? You like... And, and I think that is important for people to think about, like, in addition to what you're doing now, where else can you, where, where else could you apply your skill set or your interests? And it sounds like, I mean, don't get me wrong, providing books for kids to learn from, that's a very noble career. You're, you're doing something that does feel good, but it sounds like personally, you're enjoying yourself way more by being out somewhere where you're not stuck in the same boring walls you know you're you're not on someone else's schedule i mean as the guide you're the one setting the pace so i mean it it feels like there's way more independence in what you're doing now than the career that you were living before yeah there is and and i think it took me a little while of uh being a guide to be able to really compare the two and i think what it was is that i realized that i was fulfilling a good role when i was working in the publishing business but I didn't feel like it was the good role that I was made for. And I think that was sort of causing the dissonance in me because I looked at the life I was living and I thought, well, this is good. Like my work has meaning, Um, you know, I'm I'm well compensated. It's not the end of the world. It's a tough schedule, but everybody's got a tough schedule. Um, But it was just that nagging feeling that I was made for something different, not necessarily something more, not necessarily even something better, but just something different. I felt like, um, to put it bluntly, I felt like, other people could do what I was doing in the publishing business. And I felt like I had something that was um, maybe not unique to me, but maybe a little more rare, uh, you know, with the desire to be doing this type of work. And uh, I think that's what it was more than anything. So when I look at it, I I now think like, if I'm going to be honest, my work has more meaning now um, because I'm more actualized in it. You know, you, you want, it's like anything, you want the person with the right skill set and the right job because it's best for whatever organization. I think the same thing kind of goes for a society too, right? Um, if people have a particular message or gift or skill they want to share, it's best for society that they're able to actualize themselves and be able to contribute in the best way that they're made to. Um, and, and that's what I feel more than anything now in guiding. And I guess even now more so because I don't, actually guide much anymore. Um, the way I feel developing our staff, the way I feel um, when I see them guiding, you know, it went from, you know, it used to be before I was a guide, climbing the mountain and seeing the view was a satisfaction for me. And then once I was a guide, it was living vicariously through that person who was seeing that view for the first time. Um, and now it's, you know, getting a trip report from one of my guides, like, yeah, we actually had someone burst into tears at the summit because she was so overwhelmed by the beauty of the view. And like, now I get that I'm two steps removed from it, but it hits me just as profoundly as it did when I was the one seeing that through my eyes. Um, and, and, you know, that's that's really where the, the true reward comes in now, because um, it's not just the impact that I was able to have. And I could fill up the whole podcast with inspiring stories of people connecting with nature. Um, but but now it's almost more rewarding for me to see it and, and knowing that, you know, our organization is is expanding and that we're having a bigger reach and um, there are all these more people. I mean, our philosophy is really simple, right? Time outdoors makes for better humans. 
better humans makes for better society. Therefore, it's in everyone's interest to get more people, more time outdoors. And um, it, it's really nice to see that. Yeah. We always say like, if a kid grows up on a farm, you don't have to worry about that kid becoming a, a menace to society, right? Like the kid yep. understands life, death, struggle, hard work, all that great stuff. You, yep. you started off teaching, or I should say guiding the, the folks that were at the bar, but your company is guiding all different types of types of people now. Like I know that you yep. said that you're doing some corporate groups. I mean, are your courses and your trips, are they open to like adults with children, children only, uh, yep. elderly, yep. like, like who, who's the clientele that comes to, to DBA? Sure. So accessibility is, is something that's really hit us. You know, it's, um, the number of times that I was, when I was guiding or even our guides here now um, from a native New Yorker who's in the woods and being moved and we hear a variation on the following. Wow, this is amazing. My whole life, I grew up in New York City. This stuff was only two hours north of me. And this whole time I thought that the woods were only for people who had a thousand dollars more to drop at REI um, or in some cases, I thought the woods was only for white people who had a thousand dollars to drop at REI because that's where representation comes in, right? Like, you know, people look at the culture, they look at the advertising, they look at it and they just don't see anyone that looks like them themselves out there. Um, and that goes for like, we do an enormous amount of business with the ultra Orthodox Jewish community. Mm -hmm. And when I was first approached by a rabbi in 2014 or so, um, that was really the approach was, we would love our children to be out there, but we don't know if it's something that we can do because we've never seen people wearing yarmulkes, wearing traditional dress, keeping kosher in the woods. Is this something you can do? And I went, if you can teach me the rules, we can do it. Um, and so now this is, you know, a community that's had an enormous introduction to the woods through what we've been able to do. And it's wonderful because we have a few families now that we have been taking them out their kids were six when they started and now they're 13 and 14. And uh, it's amazing to see that growth. Um, and, and our clientele really does look like New York City. We have everything from people who are probably experienced enough that they may have been taking some of your courses mm -hmm. out in Utah, but they live in New York City now and they don't have a car, right? Which is not uncommon in New York City. So they want to get out, but they realize, well, all of the really good places to get to hike you can't reach them by public transportation. Um, renting a car in New York City is not cheap. And um, you know, then you've got to go through the trouble of getting out to one of the airports to pick up the rental car, driving yourself back through New York City traffic after a weekend in the woods. So we'll have some trips where we have people who are just a step below the guides in terms of outdoor experience, right next to someone who's maybe having their first experience in the woods. Um, so it's pretty remarkable. We, we really take a lot of time to train our guides to really understand that, you know, one of our mottos is adventure for all and that we really train to make sure that we identify different barriers to the outdoors. Always say that like a guide's primary role is to break down barriers to the outdoors. <clears throat> and some of those are very obvious, like someone doesn't have a car, someone doesn't know where to hike, someone doesn't have the skills. Um, and those are really easy. And some of the barriers are less obvious, like representation. Um, and that and that's a big one that we're, you know, we're looking to address now, making sure that people from all backgrounds, whether it's ethnicity, skill level, ability, whatever the case might be, everyone understands that if you want to go to the wilderness, there is a place where you can go to the wilderness. And if you choose to progress further in terms of skill, great. But if not, 
there is a spot for you in the wilderness. Yeah, I got a I got a follow up comment and a question for you. Uh, you said how you know there are times where there are students that come to you or, or clients that come to you that might have a similar level of skills as, as a guide and then someone who's a relative newbie. You know, when I was working, you know, north of the Adirondacks and at the Wilderness Learning Center, we used to always say like some of the best learning took place around the fire because it was outside of the formal class setting, but it was a very yep. relaxed atmosphere. Everyone's chilling by the fire and you could have the the quote unquote NASCAR dad or soccer mom sitting next to a SWAT operator or a guy yep. that was you know paying out of pocket for advanced training because he was going to some federal law enforcement um, you know position in the boonies. And it was funny to see who was teaching what and to see these folks come out of their comfort zone and be like, oh, you know, here's a here's something that I can show you how to do. And next thing you know, like here's the, the soccer mom learning from the SWAT operator or vice versa, yep. you know, um, yep. what's one of the more memorable times that you've had with a, a client where you're like, damn, I learned something today, <laughs> you know, where the, the client actually yep. schooled you. You know, I'm going to go with a slight variation on that. And only because it's so recent, mm -hmm. um, we did one of our annual staff trainings uh, about two weeks ago. And, um, when we hire apprentice guides now, we typically hire based on um, personality and uh, a number of sort of soft skills rather than looking at someone's actual backcountry experience. And the reason for this is that, you know, we can teach people the hard skills, reading a map and compass, risk management, setting a fire in the rain, all of that. Um, what we can't teach is teaching someone to give a damn about someone else's experience. And we can't teach people to be empathetic. We can't really teach people to be patient. So um, I look for those qualities when we're hiring and then we sort of say, and, and, you know, we'll teach the outdoor skills. So on our last staff training, we had a good mix of people that came in with pretty solid outdoor experience, even a little bit of outdoor leadership experience. And then we had a number of apprentices who came in with significantly less of the outdoor hard skills, but good soft skills. And it happened just like you said, in that magic around the campfire where, um, and I, just as an aside, I think it comes from one, nobody has a phone when you're sitting around the campfire. Mm -hmm. Two, the, the vision is slightly darkened, so it's not as direct. And I think the biggest thing with a campfire is that you're sitting in a circle of light and there's darkness surrounding you. And that instantly causes a bonding among the group to feel like we're all united in this circle of light and there's dark surrounding us. And it's, it's symbolic, but I, I, I've spent my whole career trying to exactly put my finger on what is the cause of that magic that happens around a campfire. Because I've witnessed it enough times, I know beyond any doubt that a certain type of magic there exists, but um, haven't been able to put on. And so I was eavesdropping on the campfire conversation on this training trip. And it was really interesting to see one of our apprentice guides, who is a social worker, talking to one of our other apprentice guides, who is a very experienced outdoorsman, and seeing the two of them share skills about like, well, I find often if I'm having trouble teaching someone something, this is an approach I'll take, she says. Goes, oh, wow, that's amazing. Because the last time I was trying to teach someone how to strike a flint and steel, they kept making the same mistake and I couldn't figure out how to change my instruction to help them from making that. So it's so fascinating to see that like cross-pollination going on there around a campfire. And um, I'm sure that I've got some more from my memory banks, but that one's sticking out because it's so recent and it hit me as so profound because 
it was happening between staff, you know, not, not, not among the clientele at large, but, um, that, that's the kind of thing that we see. Yeah. Yeah. And it just happens so organically, right? Like you don't force it. It yep. just happens. Um, something that's that, it. that, that comes up all the time, uh, and people ask all the time, they're like, well, you know, with, with taking out a whole bunch of people, you know, how, like, is there anything that I can do when I take out my family? You know, like I get, I get that question a lot. Like you guys take out people. How can I take out my family? Like, how can I transfer some of the lessons that I've learned by taking out a group to a smaller uh, structure to a family that's going out in the woods. Do you have any advice for a person that's like, Hey, I might live in a city. I know that there are woods, whether it's New York woods or uh, like Northern California or, you know, out, just outside of a metropolis. Um, I want to take my family to the great outdoors. Like what's the, what's the formula for success if there is one that you'd recommend to a, a family, like, Hey, here's how you do it. Um, from your experience. Yep. So the first thing, and we do actually, there are a number of families that approach us and they say, my kids have gotten into the outdoors. They're begging us to go camping. I've never left New York city. I'm terrified at the prospect of doing this. And we tell them, yeah, you know, we'll teach you how to do this. You know, if you come out with us, we'll design a curriculum, you know, you have a lot of fun out there, but you're also going to be learning a ton as well so that you can hopefully do this on your own. Um, so anyone looking to do that, I would say patience, <laughs> patience is the first thing, pack, pack an extra ration of patience. You're going to run into problems. It's, they're not problems. It's just in the woods and wilderness, there are obstacles and um, we, you overcome them. It's not a problem. Um, an obstacle isn't a problem until you respond in a way that makes it a problem. Um, so we tell people to have that mindset, be very patient. You know, it's New York demographic, right? So we have a lot of type A New Yorkers who are very used to getting everything right. They're very goal focused and they want things to go smoothly and according to plan. So if I get that vibe, my number one priority is breaking that vibe just to understand that's not the way things are going to go out here and making sure that everyone embraces that, that you have to embrace the idea of not, this is the adventure we had planned in the itinerary, um, but embracing the idea of we're in the wilderness and the wilderness will give us what it does. Um, and I always tell people, you know, the, the wilderness speaks to you um, and it will give you what you need, whether you want that or not. <laughs> and um, it's very important to be aware of what's going on and not to push back against the way things are. So, you know, for a family that, you know, in, in their mind, oh, we're going to get into camp and we're going to set a fire and we're going to have a dinner and we're going to have s'mores and it's going to be great. If you get out there and it's been raining all day, all of a sudden at that point, you might have to think, all right, you know what, maybe s'mores and a fire aren't going to happen. So the idea is that you want to set the idea of we're going out to the woods to have fun, not that we're going to do these specific things because you may not be able to do those specific things, but that's not the point of it. The point of it is being there and experiencing anything and everything the wilderness has to throw at you. And then you sort of, your response to that will determine what kind of adventure you have. Man. Yeah. I think that flexibility is really important. Uh, yeah. You know, traveling, traveling in, in different parts of the country where you're relying on those, those backcountry kind of livery systems. And I know you guys do some of that too, right? Like you'll, you'll drop people off here and there. Um, yep. I think that's, you know, especially if you're coming from New York where it's like, Hey, the trains run on time for the most part. Right. Like right, uh, right. it's like, man, why isn't the shuttle here? Um, one yeah. of the, one of the craziest stories I heard, I don't know if you can, if you heard this one, but I heard that after nine 11, there were people waiting on bush planes 
when all flights were grounded and they're like, where's our ride? You know, and they're in the, the remote wilderness in different parts of the country. Like, where's our ride? And they had no clue that 9-11 happened. Um, you know, I mean, I think that's the ultimate example of you have to be flexible and maybe you yep. don't want to pack just enough food. You might want to pack in addition to that extra ration of, of yeah. uh, patients. You might want to pack a couple extra days of food because anything, once you get further away, like your the response time uh, definitely gets lengthened. Um, yeah. You know, now a lot of the folks listening are, are, you know, gear guys. And I know that I can be a gear guy and I'm, I'm sure you've got some things that you, you never want to leave home without. Do you guys tell your guides like, Hey, this is the minimal packing list in terms of safety gear. Um, because I think there's, there's something to be learned there for the average listener who's going out with their family or taking out a loved one, or maybe just going out by themselves. And they have like a, like a float plan that they're leaving behind. Like I'll be back by, Hey, these are the certain items that you should never leave home without. So what do you, what are you tell your guides? Like, Hey, this is what you have to carry. And here's why. Yep. Yep. So they do carry the standard, um, emergency kits, you know, everyone's wilderness first aid trained. So in terms of medical emergencies, we've got a kit for that. Um, all the guides carry a survival kit. And what that really is, is a survival kit is designed. If something goes horribly wrong, a few extra tools in there to help out. So that can be like, there's some repair stuff in there. There's a couple of different ways of starting fire without matches. If for whatever reason, you know, the lighter got soaked at some point, um, there are a number of different things. But one thing that we always really, really focus on, um, because you know, there's so much gear and it can be like getting into gear is almost its entire own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a quartermaster on our team and, and listen, this guy knows everything. He knows how to use it. He knows the comparative products. It's remarkable. Um, so there are a few gear things, but what we always focus on teaching, um, and this is something we also tell our clients, pack your gear, know your gear, but consider skills that you possess as part of your kit. And we always joke that like, you've got a packing list of the gear you need. There should also be a corollary list of the skills that you would need. And one list is not complete without the other. And, um, you know, we always say like gear can get lost, broken or damaged in the field. None of those things can happen to skills. Um, So we had one guide who loved carrying four or five different ways of starting fire without matches. And eventually I told her, I was like, listen, that's awesome, but you're just carrying an extra two or three pounds of stuff around. Unless you're doing a survival school specifically, just have one backup way of doing that. And that should be pretty cool. And it was so interesting for her to go, well, I like one method if the wood's damp and I like another if it's totally saturated and I like another if it's totally dry. And I was like, well, find one that meets across all three. Um, and that's part of what we do. Um, it's, it's interesting because I know a lot of people get very much into gear we almost encourage our guides not to get too gear heady around the clients only because we don't want people to think that these are necessary items to enjoy the woods. If there's something that's essential and we can go through the essentials, you know, backup lighter or backup source of ignition, backup edge tool, backup cordage, backup water purification, all of those things. Like it's wonderful to have those. Um, but I tell the guys like, listen, if for whatever reason you lost your survival kit, you should know how to purify water 
with just what you have on hand, mm-hmm. um, you know, in your regular kit outside of your survival kit. You should know how to do basic repairs with just what you've got on hand, not specifically in your survival kit. Um, but yeah, the, the stuff that we, to answer your question, because I don't want to go too far off track, um, everyone has to bring out, you know, a robust first aid kit. They have to bring out edge tools, spare cordage. Um, food is not an issue on our trips because we overpack all the time for food. This is definitely on our trips. It's not like these are your 3000 calories. That's it. There's nothing more. Um, if we have seven people on an overnight, we send out enough food for 10 people on the overnight. And that's the guides don't always love that because it gets their packs pretty heavy. But, um, you know, the clients love it because they see that abundance and no one has to be shy about eating in a communal setting. Like, oh, am I going to have more than my share? I don't want to cut into somebody else's calories. We're serving communally. There's still food left in the pot. Can I have seconds? Like, of course you can. Like, this is this is why we bring this much. Um, and we do do some more intensive overnights where we're doing either lightweight backpacking or um, I know one of our guides is doing a one-on-one five-day survival school over the summer for um, for a very ambitious individual. And he's already started putting together his kit list for that trip because he's going to need it. You know, that's going to be one where if you're going to be teaching skills for five days, you're probably going to need three or four different ways of starting fire without matches. Just if for nothing else, you can fill the instructional time. Um, have two or three different ways of harvesting fish from a brook without a fishing rod. Um, whether that's, you know, a little length of cordage that you keep in your survival kit or the knowledge of how to build a fish trap that you mm-hmm. keep in your head with no additional equipment. So um, we always have the, you know, everybody, clients and guides alike, try and walk that fine line between I have the tool to fix this versus I have the knowledge to fix this. Yeah, um, what- it's so similar to, and again, here's another similarity with, with us, you know, not only schooling and all this stuff, but when we used to work, uh, or when I used to work up at the wilderness learning center, we would do an advanced class where we would tell people, all right, you're going to carry certain items, but you're not going to carry more than those certain items. And you're also going to keep a journal and you're going to record what you used, but then also record what you wished you had. And, you know, it was interesting to see like the students talk about, well, I didn't use my whistle, but I'm glad I had it just in case of an emergency. Like I understand that that was a safety requirement, but it didn't get any use. But uh, the funny thing was, is that if you look at what is being marketed in all the major magazines for like, oh, you have to have this gear, you have to have that gear. There's a difference between wanting and needing. And when people would come out of those courses, they would say, man, I wish I had salt because we didn't give them seasoning. And they're like, I take for granted seasoning on food. Or I wish I had a folding saw because when I built my shelter, yes, I have a knife that can cut fiber really, really well, but those little nubs, those little branches that are sticking out from the the trunk of what I'm using for the ribbing of my shelter, it's really hard to carve those off. I wish I had a a saw that could just saw it right off. Like those experiences, like what you're talking about, where you're, you're balancing skill with gear, when you tend to go a little bit light on the gear, it really forces you to think about how can I apply what I actually have to, to what I need to do? And that's really where I think you get the most fun out of the great outdoors. It's like, look how resourceful I can be with limited resources. It's, yep. it's good stuff, man. Um, and, and I'll say, honestly, I'm not surprised that we both share that approach because I think that's a very Jesuit school type of thing, <laughs> yeah. right? It really is like the idea that you've got this, you're the agent, you're the one who has that ability. So yeah, yeah, it was, it was very funny. We're, um, we're taking out a group of Fordham grad students and uh, 
in just about a week and I was on the phone with their the director of their program and she said well we're a Jesuit school and I'm not sure if you're familiar with so I was like I'll stop you right there are these let me get are these some of the uh, principles that you want to cover? And she said, yes, I said, I'm a Fairfield graduate. So you know, <laughs> it's interesting to see that, but um, it just popped up. I was joking that this week is Jesuit week for me. Um, and Fordham had found us even before the Fairfield article came out. So um, it's pretty cool to see that. But yeah, as soon as I told her that, you could see her mindset changing. Okay, we're on the same page about what the philosophy and the ethics of this trip are going to be. So, yep. yep. Yeah, I, men- I mentioned in uh, our email before we jumped on the podcast that I had done some pretty weird stuff at Fairfield when I was there. Cause I, I got there and I was still like the, the outdoorsy guy. Like I had a kayak yeah. in my dorm room and I actually appeared in one of the, the Fairfield commercials where all my dorm mates like threw water at me and I've got the kayak and in, in Campion <laughs> hall, you know, and I'm just smiling as water's getting thrown on me. And, you know, and then we went swimming in that pond over by Bellarmine and security was like, um, what are you guys doing? We're like, we're swimming, we're getting Frisbees. And they're like, yeah, um, they're, like they're, they're looking through the rule book. Like, um, it doesn't say you can't swim here, but why the hell are you swimming here? Like, you? Yeah. you know, and it, you know yep. it's just, it's just it, that school was a, a lot of fun. Um, but for, I mean, folks that don't know, like it brings in a lot of people from the tri-state area and there were people who are like, you're like a woodsy guy, huh? I'm like, well, yeah, yeah. we've got woods in Connecticut, you know, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> You know, it's just, uh, just too many good memories. I mean, I could probably share some, but I, I don't want people to think different with me. Um, let's just say <laughs> what happens in college stays in college. Right. Listen, listen, my stories from those years would be worse because I wasn't doing a ton of outdoor stuff at that time. I really like, I grew up in an outdoorsy family in the sense that like we did a lot of fishing. Um, you know, my father, when we were vacation, he would always want to go somewhere where we could fish and clam and crab and things like that. And uh, my mother's family has some roots in the Western Catskills. So we'd go visit this little postage stamp parcel of land out near Margaretville. And, um, you know, I, I, I knew the outdoors and I liked the outdoors, um, but it really wasn't until after I had graduated college that the outdoor bug really, really got me to the point where this is a huge part of my life, which um, actually makes me a little unconventional in the outdoor leadership industry. Um, you know, when I tell people like, no, nah, you know, I didn't really get into backpacking until I was about 28 and like, what? <laughs> I go, yeah, you know, like I always liked to kayak and canoe. Um, not long after graduation, I lived in the Florida Keys for a while and, you know, just kayaking, snorkeling and fishing in the mangroves. That was enough outdoors for me. It wasn't until, um, so I went to a buddy's wedding in North Carolina and I was talking to one of the other groomsmen and we were talking about fishing because I've always loved to fish. She was talking about the trout fishing in the mountains in Western North Carolina. So it sounds fantastic. He goes, but you know, some of these spots are like a two or three mile hike back there. If you're going to do that, if you want to have any time to fish, you might as well plan on camping. I thought, man, you know, I haven't done like a multi-night camping trip since I was, ah, before I was 20. And then I did that at about 28. And then it was, and then it bit me really hard after that. But um, I, I often tell that story to people who are in their twenties or thirties and like, well, I'm starting so late. I'm never going to get as good at this as you are. But well, actually, don't don't be so quick to jump to that. Um, so it is pretty. This is pretty. But yeah, I might have been one of those people on campus who had seen you swimming over your bowline and going, "I bet there's Giardia in that water." And I didn't want to tell you what we smelled like when we walked back through the halls. But I mean, I we, we walked through the girl side of the of the dorm <laughs> and. 
every girl walked out of her room and they're like, what is that? And there's us like with like, we had white shirts on and they were all brown, but, um, but you know, like the whole unorthodox entry into the great outdoors that you're talking about. I mean, it's not uncommon. Like who was it? Uh, Cheryl Strayed, right. She wrote the book. Uh, was it wild? Yeah. Um, yep. And then there was uh, was it Bill Bryson did a walk in the woods. Walk in the woods. Yeah. yeah. Like still one of my favorite reads. Yeah. Phenomenal. Man's, man's a great author. It's just very entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, like, if you guys are listening and you're like, man, I wish I did that too. Like, it's not too late. I mean, there are people no. that get into the great outdoors at all you know stages of their life, and I mean, there's something that you can take from it. I mean, you might not be the guy that's you know freak soloing uh, you know El Capitan or anything like that, but you can definitely find a great trout stream and, and learn how to catch fish and put fish on the table. Um, one podcast guest, by the way, we were talking that I would love to get on our podcast. Uh, do you know who Valentine Thomas is? Have you ever heard that name? I I've heard, I can't place it in any context. The name sounds familiar, but she, yeah, she, she no, was recently no on uh, on Joe Rogan's podcast. She was an attorney in great Britain and decided I'm going to catch fish and put food on my own table. And she's now this like world-class spearfisher woman and i'm like that is a cool person i want to just have a great conversation with that person so um here's a question for you and because we're running short on time uh if you could share a campfire with anyone throughout history dead or alive who would that person be (laughs) Mm. you know i think just because of the state of the world right now and the feeling that we're in a transition period, um, both culturally and globally, I think my mind would first go to someone who had lived through and was a leader in a similar time. So um, I'd love to pick Lincoln's brain about what it was like to try and hold a country together. Um, You know, I'd love to pick George Washington's brain on what it was like to build a country in those. I mean, I read a biography of George Washington last year and was just struck by how often he felt in ways that I felt as a guide, you know, the uncertainty of, of needing to balance three or four different possibilities in his head and having three or four different lines of logistics running and wondering how they will combine, if they will combine, when they won't. Um, So those are two names that would come to mind immediately. Um, You know, I'd also be very interested in speaking to someone uh, who was involved in a struggle for equality. Um, Mm. And this is something that's really, DBA has taken um, a foray into in the last year or so, is is really trying to address the representation issues in the outdoors. you know, for the longest time, we tried to recruit guides that looked more like our clientele. But um, you've worked in the industry long enough. You know, it's it's not uh, it's not a monochrome industry, but it's not nearly as diverse as the country. Um, so teaming up with organizations like Latino Outdoors and Outdoor Afro and, you know, recruiting quality trip leaders, people of color who can spread their passion for the outdoors. So, um and I'd have to think about, you know, who would would meet that that mark of of uh, you know struggling for equality uh, or just struggling to expand um, something that's beautiful to a number of people, right? Like uh, the American dream. You know, people talk about it being dead. It's not. We just need to make sure that it's alive for everyone. And um, so I think, you know, the default would be like Dr. King or something like that. But given a little more time to think, I bet I could figure <laughs> yeah. a pretty interesting third person to to share that campfire with. 
Yeah, I'll take those two answers though with the the two former presidents any day. Um, yeah. So where can people find you, and and what's next for DBA? Sure, sure. So. I mean, easiest way, destinationbackcountryadventures.com. It's a mouthful, but we're lucky enough. My awesome wife, co-owner of the company, is amazing with technology. So any combination of those words should get you to our website. Um, even guided outdoor hiking search in, in you know, New York, Googling that will get us. Um, but yeah, the full URL, destinationbackcountryadventures.com. And, um, you know, what the future holds... We, we think that we've got, you know, a good decade um, at our current configuration to continue to fulfill our mission, expanding our partnerships in the way that we have. I mean, it's wonderful to be in an industry that's very much blue ocean. You know, there are really no competitors, provided that, you know, any guiding company is doing things the right way in terms of ethics and sustainability. Um, everyone is a potential partner. And uh, in an industry that's really, you know, primarily sole proprietorships or very small organizations. Um, it's wonderful to be able to grow your own business and know that you're also growing the ecosystem of the industry as well. Yeah, it's it's pretty powerful. A lot of folks will say, you know, who's your number one competitor? And we always say like our competitor doesn't exist. Our competitor <laughs> might be someone that says, don't go outdoors, you know, stay inside on the video game, you know, look in your phone. Yep. You know, I when people are like, what do you think of this school? Are you guys better than them? I'm like, we're doing the same thing. You know, like there's yep. only so many ways you can make a fire. The delivery is a little bit different. So people will tend to gravitate towards one personality or another, but I'm happy when people are getting in the great outdoors. You know, I'm happy yep. when people yep. Are, yep. are doing it the right way. And, you know, one thing that I, I worry about is when people get into the great outdoors incorrectly, and then here's a great, maybe selfishly, here's a great weekend that I'm taking a group of people out. And now we have to divert our plans because someone's in trouble and granted, yeah, we'll take care of them, but I would rather you not get in trouble in the first place. So, yeah, yes, yes. well, guys, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of cool stuff going on in the great outdoors. Um, I will encourage you guys to get in the great outdoors and whether you come out here to Utah or North Carolina with Fieldcraft, or, you know, you join up with uh, DBA in, in New York, please do it. Um, it will make you a better person. It'll make you realize the hard work that you think you have at work is really not work at all um, until you experience something hard that really tests your character. So Dave, thanks so much for joining us on the Fieldcraft podcast. And guys, thank you so much for listening. It was a pleasure. Thank you.